our Bibles, and we're going to go to the book of 1 John, and we're going to look at verse 6 in chapter 5. There's a lot that we need to discuss tonight in regards to this verse, uh, primarily because even though we're not living in the time in which this book was written anymore, there's a false doctrine that kind of goes around about Jesus and his godhood when he became God and all these different things. And the statement here of water and of blood, and uh, it's been misused quite a bit. So I figured before we go into verses 7 through, really, uh, verse 13, where we talk about the record of God and we set up the law of two witnesses and we talk about the Trinity, we need to sit here and talk about this verse a little bit. I think it's important we always understand why we believe what we believe. The reason I came to Bible college was because if someone were to ask me that very question, well, what makes you convinced of salvation by grace alone? I knew Bible verses, but I didn't understand them contextually. And I could only say to the person who was asking me, well, that's just what my church teaches. And I'd refer him to my pastor. I don't think there's anything wrong with you know, leaning on your pastor to answer questions like that. But at the end of the day, if God's going to hold us all accountable for the things that we do, I think it's good practice to be able to defend ourselves and defend our faith. Uh, Peter tells us that. We need to be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks the reason of the hope that is within us. Now, that's used in a lot of apologetic discussion, and I think that's, that's a good application. I think primarily the interpretation there is give an answer of the reason of the hope that is in you. What is that hope? Well, it's, it's the hope of eternal life. It's knowing where we will be upon the day of our death. And if we are so busy with other things in our lives or we're just kind of leaning on our church as a tool, then we're going to miss a wonderful opportunity to learn more about God's Word and be able to apply it when we're asked questions. And in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6 is one of those places. Some of the major world faiths right now, surprisingly, Mormonism is pretty close to breaking into the top five you would say, wow, that's, that's only in Utah. No, you'd be surprised. Um, they're, they're everywhere. Jehovah's Witness is already in the top five as, as one of the main Christian faiths. and They have some very interesting views about Jesus Christ. They're different, but they essentially say the same thing, that Jesus had to become the Christ. Just as a refresher, Jesus' last name is not Christ. I say that not to be humorous, but I mean, when I was a kid, that's what I thought. If, if I were to address him, it would probably be Mr. Christ, because I just thought that was his last name. That's actually his, his title, and when you're witnessing to a Jewish person or you're talking to a Jewish person, you are believing in the, the Messiah that came through their line, and that's what Christ means. It's the English version of Messiah. This is the Redeemer, and we talked about what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ last week. I want to look at that because verse 6 is carrying through the thought that's already been established. But in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, "...whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Messiah." <clears throat> now, this is not just that He's the Messiah, that He holds that title. There's a specific set of things that are required within that understanding of the Messiah. And the biggest one is found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. And since we're right in that book, look over at it very quickly. It's just a page turnover, and it says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is what it means to be the Messiah. Now, Jesus, in the, in the fulfillment of the law, he fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the imagery that the Old Testament sacrifices were 
alluding to were fulfilled in Christ. John says in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. That was always his form and function. Among many other things, he's now our mediator, he is the redeemer, but primarily here he is the sacrifice for sin. He is the one who will step in the place of the sinner and have that blood payment put to the account of the believer. The only person who puts their faith in Christ receives that. So it's important to recognize here, this is a conversation that John is beginning to set up, and there is a reason why he's having this discussion. There was a big theological discussion that was happening in John's day, a, a contemporary to him is Gnosticism. And it's the total separation of anything that is fleshly or material from things that are spiritual or immaterial. Um, this teaching is primarily taught today. Uh, in the study of Mormonism, if you want to be saved, okay, it's not how you and I would understand salvation. When you think of salvation probably coming from a Baptist or a Catholic background, you think of salvation as deliverance from hell. That's primarily what we understand when we see the word saved or salvation in the scriptures. When a Mormon is taught what salvation is, it is a step in a long process to an end goal. And the end goal is Godhood. That might be shocking to know. It shocked me when I would learn this, that the Mormon's ultimate goal is to be like God. By their own following of the Mormon teaching, they will come to the conclusion that they have done enough righteousness of themselves to be crowned as a god. They'll be given their own planet where they can procreate and people will worship them. You don't hear a lot of this teaching anymore in the LDS, the Latter-day Saints Church, because they're trying to reform a lot of it. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be studying it because the problem with that is it is the exact same, it's the heartbeat of what Satan said at the fall. I will be like the Most High. He will ascend. He will take that worship which rightfully belongs to God. Now, you and I can say that we already are like God, but of no good works of ourselves. Where do we see that? Look in chapter 3 of 1 John. And this is the distinguisher that I want you to see here as we're getting ready to have this discussion. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, speaking about those same individuals who have already had faith in Christ, now are we the sons of God. Right now, in our position with Christ, I don't like the word relationship that much, but I think it's properly applied here. The relationship that we have to God is we are a child of God because of the justifying that has happened in the blood of Christ. It continues to say, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. This is the sanctification process, the ongoing battle between your flesh and your spirit. We are not in our resurrected bodies yet. And thank God, right? The problems that you suffer with, the sin that so easily besets you, it's going to continue to plague you. You're going to have problems with your flesh all of your life. I can tell you, though, the day that you no longer have those issues is the day that you are absent from the body and present with the Lord. And I, I like thinking about that. I don't think that's a dark thought. I cannot wait until the day where there is a version of me that has no sin. I can't wait for that. It doesn't appear what we will be, but 
we know. John is speaking from a position of assurance. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So I don't think there's anything wrong with understanding our new nature is perfect, just as God is perfect. Look in verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his, sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That new nature that is in you, it's born of God. It does not have the ability to sin. Your sinful nature can hinder it, just like all throughout history, mankind has hindered the work of God, and God has still gone through it. But there's been many roadblocks. It, it's actually an interesting study if you look and see how many times that demons or even Satan himself have stopped the progress of somebody getting the gospel. You look at the Apostle Paul and his friend Barnabas, who were literally held up by the devil as they were trying to go from city to city. Boy, that's quite an honor, don't you think, to have the devil's full attention? Remember, the devil, the devil is not a carbon copy of God. He's not all-knowing. He cannot be in every place at once. By the way, I, I don't think, uh, I've heard before people say, well, I'm just, I'm wrestling with the devil. You're not wrestling with the devil. I think the devil's working on the Antichrist right now, setting up this one world religion, this one world government. And folks, it's, that train has left the station and the tracks are, or the, the wheels are turning faster and faster every day. We are getting so close to the Lord's return. But you do fight against principalities, against wickedness, uh, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our, our primary battle is not against flesh and blood. We're, we're, there's a spiritual battle that's going on right now, even in this very room. There was one at, at your home, there's one at your place of work, all those things apply. But our new nature, although it can be hindered by the flesh, it cannot sin. It does commit not one single act of sin. That's what that word commit means here. So the only way that we attain the righteousness of God is not by good works, it's by the one-time moment of faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Then you are justified, then you have the new birth, and you will be like God one day. Now, we will not be, to the Mormon extent, procreating on different planets. All of that writing and stuff came from a 14-year-old kid. And th this kid, Joseph Smith, I believe, he, he wrote tons of stuff that did not line up with scripture and drawing people to the conclusion that this is he's got some revealed knowledge he he puts himself on the same plane as the apostle paul and others getting this extra revelation of the scripture but one of the biggest beliefs that is held in mormonism that i think is is one of the most heinous outside of attaining salvation by faith um, in your good works is what they view about Jesus. And this is not a new thing. The Jehovah's Witness do this too. They, they believe that Jesus attained godhood at his baptism. And we're going to study that tonight. We're going to look at what the scripture says about Jesus' baptism and the purpose of it. But then they also believe to an extent that on the cross, the Christ spirit left him, and now the man was on the cross, and that's why he died. They, they they can't reckon that Jesus would experience the separation of the soul from his body. They, they, they think that that is too powerful for God. Well, you have to remember that Jesus was not killed on the cross. He gave up his life 
And there is a reason why, because the very purpose of his life and the shedding of his blood and the body that he was in had been accomplished. That's why he says, it, the payment for sin, it, is finished. He gave up the ghost. Sure, you could say he was slain on the cross, but, but his life was not taken from him. Do you understand what I'm saying? But many people, they can't reconcile that. It's, it's the same thing with the Calvinist who can't reconcile man's free will with God's sovereignty. We have free will in this nation, but there's still the sovereignty of the law that can be held against us. I have all the free will to break the law, but I'm not free of the consequences that come from breaking the law. Unless, of course, I'm in certain cities all around this country nowadays. But it's the same thing with Jesus Christ in regards to his body that was offered. There was not some mystical power that descended upon him that made him sinless. He was not just a man who then became God. Both the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons teach that. And there's some things here that John is going to say in verse 6 before he sets up the record of God, which I think is going to be one of the best studies we'll have on these, these next few verses. We're not going to get into that for a couple of weeks. But when he says in verse 1, go back to chapter 5 and verse 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. He goes on continuing talking about the love and the importance of love. In verse 4, he says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Specifically, our faith in Christ. It's very important that we understand the subject in which we are placing our faith. There are millions of people, and I kid you not, millions of people today that are taking their money, and they are, out of faith, placing their money on who's going to win the coin toss in the next seven minutes. I'm, I'm talking thousands of dollars. They, they, they take prop bets. Who's going to have the most yardage at the end of the first quarter? And they are putting their faith in the subject, which is that bet coming in their favor. Many people are putting their faith in their good works to get them to heaven. They're putting their faith in their church membership to get them to heaven. They're putting their faith in their reputation or execution of God's word to get them to heaven. The atheist is putting their faith in their own beliefs that there is no God. People exercise faith every single day. The most important thing is, is the subject of your faith sound? And that is why we get to verse 5 and 6. Because John is basically saying, the person of Jesus Christ, he is trustworthy. He's been verified, so to speak. Look in verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a very important statement because now he's going to ratify that in verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood. I believe this is not talking about by water of his incarnation because the rest of the verse talks about this and it says, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. There's two very important events that happen in relation to the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. I believe in the Trinity, and we're going to lay that case out, not next week or the week after because I'll be traveling, but the, for the first week of March, we're going to get into the case for the Trinity, and we're going to get into how 1 John 
um, 5 verses 7 through 13 make a discussion for that. But for tonight, we're going to look at these two events that happened regarding Christ and the Holy Spirit and why they're significant about his godhood. Because if we're trusting in a man, listen to me closely now, if we're trusting in a man who became God, let me say very clearly so there's no question, he cannot pay for your sin. There is no way. You cannot show me one person that is alive today. I don't care how good they are. You cannot show me one person that is alive today that does not have the wages of sin waiting to be applied to their account. We are born into sin. The age of accountability is a question that is debated. It is hotly debated. I answered that question on Bible Line. You can check that out. It's in our section there. I, I even made a video about it. But we're born into sin. There's not a moment in which when we're children, when we commit our first sin, all of a sudden now the wages of sin is put to our account. We're born into it, folks. It, it passes down. It's not something that is genetic in form. We can't isolate it and get it out. Which, by the way, the advancement of genetics today, you hear some of the things that uh, the billionaires in the world are, are looking to do, cure blindness, cure the ability, or uh, cure paralysis, all sorts of stuff. It's, it's incredible, the manipulation of the genetic code. But you can't find a sin gene, so to speak, that we can remove, and then these two people who have this gene removed they get together and reproduce children who don't have that gene. That's not how that works. We're all found guilty before God. I believe that God shows mercy to those who, yet, who do not yet understand the difference between right and wrong. But the important, the important thing to see here is we are born into this sinful nature, and I want you to see where the Bible teaches this. In Romans chapter 5, let's go over there for a moment here. Hold your spot in 1 John. Romans chapter 5. Verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here's, the, here's the, the flag, so to speak. Here's the marker for sin, death. The original plan of creation included zero death. Things were just going to go on as God had made them. But the introduction of sin caused separation. As a matter of fact, one of the most deceitful things that the devil did in the garden when he was in the form of that serpent is he convinced Eve that you're not going to die this day physically. I don't know if Eve understood everything about the spirit and of course the flesh and all that. That's not really what we're discussing. But they did experience a separation from God that day. And that is shown not only in what God said to them when he came down and walked with them, but it is also shown in that he did not walk with them anymore and there had to be a blood sacrifice for their sins. And what was that blood sacrifice? It was the skinning of an animal to provide a, uh, uh, excuse me, acceptable coverage for their nakedness. What did they cover with? Fig leaves, right? Leaves and all these different things. 
What did God provide for them? Coats of skin from the animal, which required the shedding of blood. You can see this in Cain and Abel. What did Cain provide? An offering of vegetation, probably a cornucopia, if we were to have an accurate comparison. And what did Abel provide? The shed blood of an innocent animal. Which one was accepted? The shed blood. Because even from the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, all the way down to the cross of Calvary, there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And it, the reason why that is, is because at Adam and Eve, we're, death is now passed to all of us. There's no one that's attained eternal life. You'd be a fool if you said there was somebody who has. The only person who's done that is God himself in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that is to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. So even though we haven't sinned specifically after Adam's specific sin, it's still passed to all of us. But then the free gift is applied. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Faith in Jesus Christ brings about eternal life. This is a free gift. By the way, this is a great passage to know if someone wants to question to you that you have to earn something. The Bible uses the word gift here. I mean, and a gift is something that you don't have to work to receive. It's freely given. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. The free gift resulting in justification of the individual is received by Jesus Christ. Why did we need that justification? Because we're sinners. There's zero, there, there should be zero debate about that. So if Jesus was born of the natural process, a man and a woman coming together, and he was born into this world, he falls under a sinful nature, period. I don't even like saying that. It's heresy. But that is exactly what some of the major world religions teach today. And even in John's day, they were saying, Jesus was just a man, and he was given the Messiah spirit. The Gnostics were teaching this. And so John has to clear it up. That's why he says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, then he says in verse 5, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and now we're going to get into this discussion about water and blood. Let me read to you from my notes here. John is beginning to dismantle the common argument of his day, which was that the Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him when he was crucified on the cross. This is synonymous with the Gnostic teaching that was common in John's day. What saith the Scripture? Good question to ask, right? What does the Scripture say? Well, here is the record. Jesus has always been the Son of God. I, I, some people don't like this argument that I'm going to make here, but I think it makes a lot of logical sense. In order for, if God is eternal, and he is, we believe that, he must, if, if he is an eternal father, he has to have an eternal son. 
Otherwise, there would have been a point in time in which he was not a father, and then he became one when Jesus was created. There are major teachers out there in the free grace realm that question the virgin birth, that question if Jesus was created or if he was from eternity past. Be careful, be careful. They, some of these teachers have the gospel correct, but they get caught up in the man-made philosophy. Everybody loves that. Oh, yeah, let's, let's, how wise can we be? Oh, look at this guy. So wise, so smart, asking all the questions that people don't ask. Maybe they're vain and foolish questions, like Romans says. And we have to avoid those things. But let's take a look. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture now to make this case about the importance of the water in his, in his baptism, what was there, and the importance of his blood and why John is talking about that. But first, let's go to John chapter 1. You can let First John go because it's going to be a while before we get back there. John chapter 1, we'll look at the first four verses here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I've actually seen this recently. Um, go to some local parks, okay? If you're, if you're in West Chase or Carrollwood, there's a park called the Carrollwood Day Park or something like that. And right recently, my wife and I have been going by there, and we have not yet gone into the park, but I can't wait until the day that we do, uh, because there's been a um, Jehovah's Witness stand there, jw.org. By the way, you'll see this. It's some people sitting down. They're very nicely dressed, and they'll have an advertisement, take a free Bible class. They have a translation of their Bible. I think it's called the Watchtower Bible. You take them to John chapter 1 in verse 1, and they have changed this verse. Because they don't believe that, listen, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They think he attained Godhood. This is how their translation reads. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. One letter assaults the deity and, and makes that translation a heresy. It's, it's heretical. But that's how they, they twist it, because they, it needs to fit with what they were taught. Just show that to them and, and ask them why the difference. And you, don't be rude or unkind. That's not the point there. But I think a lot of people, they don't know what they believe. They don't know why. They just heard it in a kingdom hall, and they, they didn't check it out for themselves. But let's continue. The same was in the beginning with God. So it's always been this way, the Word, the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. From the beginning, it's been this way. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is putting a lot of significance on this logos, which is the definition of or the Greek word there for word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Look in verse 14. And the word, same Greek word there, logos, the word was made flesh. If you're, uh, if you're taking notes tonight, you should circle this. This is the incarnation. This is when God took on a body as Jesus Christ. This is important to understand why it had to be a virgin birth. That sinful nature 
would have been passed along the line to the person of Jesus Christ if it was Mary and Joseph coming together. But the Holy Spirit placing Jesus takes all of that out. And the word, which verse 1 tells us, was from the beginning, was made flesh, and particularly, look what it says, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This is important. When it says beheld, it means they saw. No one has seen God at any time. He is the invisible God. The only way we see him is in the expression the express image of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. So when it says we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, it's talking about we saw him. We saw God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. You don't see Godhood. You don't see a man who made it. You're looking in the face of God. You dismantle that when you say that he ascended into it, that he was born as a human and somehow lived so well that it was good enough to be considered eternal. It's a heresy. Common in the day, but doesn't make it right. Look in verse 18. (coughs) Excuse me. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. God has declared This is my son. And that's what his baptism is going to show. And we'll look at that in a minute. But go to John chapter 8 in verse 56. You hear me say this all the time. This is one of my favorite passages, but it really is. I love the dissertation between... It's like like a big fight night, right? You've got Jesus, the Son of God, who claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah... Some think he's Isaiah the prophet. Some think he's uh, Elijah. No one's really sure. Even his disciples are, are, are kind of figuring it out. And then you have the welterweight Pharisees, man. They've been around for a long time. They've got the family lineage. They've got the knowledge. They've got the religious garb. And it's this big fight that happens in John chapter 8. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. And it just is on full display. But the knockout punch, so to speak, the final no more talking, now it's moved to violence by the Pharisees as their response, is seen in in chapter 8 and verse 56. Look what it says. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, we don't have to be great theologians to recognize Abraham was long gone when Jesus made this statement here. And they, they see that. They're They're almost perplexed. They're so shocked that Jesus would make a statement like that, knowing that Abraham is dead. Look what they said in verse 57. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and thou hast seen Abraham? They're shocked in the fact that he said, Abraham saw your day and rejoiced in it. He was glad. You're not even 50, kid. That guy's been dead for a long time. Look at the statement that is made in verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, which always means truthfully, truthfully, I say unto you, before Abraham was, before he was born, I am, which is the title for God. And you know why we know that they understood it? 59. 
Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. This is, this is a great proof text that Jesus always has been the Son of God. He would not be able to say this if he was just a carpenter, just a dude who became God at the baptism. So then the question becomes, what is the form and function of what John says? This is him of water and of blood. What He's trying to clarify and give proof to the statement where he said, the Christ and the Son of God. Now we're going to look at that. He was incarnated, made flesh at his birth. He was glorified at his ascension. The water that is in 1 John 5, 6 rep, rep, uh, represents his baptism, and the blood represents his crucifixion. He's not just the Son of God in the life that he lived. He's the Son of God in the life that he lived and the offering that he made on the cross because it was accepted by God. It would not have been accepted if it, if it was just sinful blood like ours. So let's look at his baptism here and his blood that was shed at, at the crucifixion. Look in same book, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in verses 31 through 34. Excuse me for a moment. <clears throat> i got to take a drink of water here. Okay. John is speaking here, talking about the baptism of Jesus. And I knew him not. I believe what John is referring to here is that at the time of writing this, obviously he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But at the time that he saw Christ coming, there was some... Some clarification that still had to be made for him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. There's got to be a distinction here between the baptism of John and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of John was, it was in a negative sense, not that it was a bad thing, but it was in the removal of something. Okay, it was in the removal of, of, of sin temporarily. It was, a, it was a testimony of that. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a positive. What happens when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit? You get a new nature. You're not cleansed of one moment in time from that period um, all the way leading up to that point. You're given a brand new nature. And Jesus is the one who ultimately brings about that baptism through the Holy Spirit. And that's the signifying of his baptism. But look what it says here in verse 34. And I saw and bear record that this is, mark it please, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He did not say, this has become my Son. This is my Son. This is, a, this is a sign for John. And John is going to continue to grow in his knowledge of Christ as the Messiah. But the form and function here is seen in 1 John 5. We're not going to go there because we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit. But the record that was born here is that this person, Jesus Christ, he is the Son of God. Now let's look at the blood that was shed of Christ. Look in John chapter 19.
John chapter 19 in verse 31. There's some prophecy that is fulfilled here, and we're going to look at that prophecy, but John makes some very interesting statements here. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, but that the Sabbath day was in high day. By the way, that meant it was a high um, Sabbath. It was, there, there were different Sabbaths that were just regular Sabbath days, but there were ones that were high and holy, so to speak, a little more reserved. And this day that was coming was, was one of those. They besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they, that they might be taken away. I do think this is important to, to understand the significance of the breaking of the legs. If you study Roman crucifixion, uh, the torture, it, excuse me, the method here is not a quick death. It is torture. I mean, you, there's records of uh, people's eyes being plucked out while they're, while they're on a Roman crucifix cross, um, but they could, they could be on there for days. Um, because they're literally suffocating. If you, are, if you understand how that works without getting too graphic, but you know, sometimes I think it is good to get graphic because it reminds you of what, that, what our sin did to our Savior. But they would pierce the hands of the individual and they would pierce the feet together, one on top of the other. There's some discussion of was, was it an X or not. I don't think it was an X because of this specific thing that we're going to see here. But the two feet would lay on top of one another and the the weight of the torso would, would cause the body to slump down. I also think that the, the, the hands are not a good spot to pierce because it would just rip through. So it was probably right here where there was some bone to grab. So painful. But uh, basically, the person would push up on the spike between their two legs to get a breath and then collapse down again. And they would repeat this process and they could be up there for a long time. So the legs become a very important function on the cross. Because if you've got legs, you can push up and take a breath, and you're still on there. Well, the Jews had to get them off the cross because they have a high day, and they can't be doing any work like this. So this is why they asked Pilate, can we break the legs of these guys and move on, get them out, and, and, and we're done. They had thought that they, they had won. They had honored God in this crucifixion of his son. They didn't believe him to be his son. They let uh, Barabbas go instead. But that's the importance there. So when it comes to verse 32, there's some prophecy that's going to be fulfilled here from Psalm 22. But verse 32 says this, Then came the soldiers, and break the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Boy, I think this is important. Obviously, this is a scientific proof. There had been a separation that had occurred. Jesus was already dead on the cross. There are some, believe it or not, there are some that believe that Christ, that Jesus merely passed out on the cross and was revived in the coolness of the tomb. The water and blood coming out here separate is a scientific fact that it, the blood was not pumping anymore. It had began to separate. And here, and he that saw it bear record. Now John is speaking of himself here. There's a record. He's saying, this is what I saw. This is what it means. And his record is true. What's the purpose of John sharing this record with you, the reader? And he knoweth that he, sa uh, that he saith true, that you might believe. Believe what? Believe what? Look in chapter 20 in verses 30 and 31. 
And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. There is no other method of salvation outside of faith in Christ alone. He is the Son of God. He holds that title of the Messiah. And that's the record. Go back to chapter 19 and verse 35. That's the record that John is saying. But I love what, what happens next in the next two verses. He backs it up with some prophecy. Look what it says in verse 36. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Number one, a bone of him shall not be broken. Hold your spot and go to the book of Psalms in chapter 22. Some people say, well, you've got to have blind faith to believe on Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's not a blind faith at all. It's believing in the record that God has said. The entire context of Scripture is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, and you see the history of that love all the way from Adam and Eve up until the cross, up until the day when we, when we are with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. But there's specific things that we look at to show this is prophecy fulfilled. He was who he claimed he said he was. Verse 14, we believe this is the messianic psalm describing the cross. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and uh, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaw, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. His bones are out of joint, but they're not broken. Look at what it continues to say. Flip, I know we're still in Psalms. Go back to John now. You can just hold your spot in the book of Psalms. And then he says here at the end of verse 37, and again another scripture saith, they shall look upon, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And look in chapter 22 of Psalms in verses 16 through 17. For the dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. The, what he means here is not his bones look and stare upon him, but it's informing what it was said in verse 16. All those that compassed about him, they looked on him. They bore that witness. Why is John including these two things? Because prophetically, it was fulfilled of Christ. Even the fact that they parted his garment and they cast lots on it, that's also said in Psalm chapter 22. I didn't focus on that prophecy because we're specifically talking about the event in which his blood was shed. Now, we're going to move very quickly here to look at the very essential nature of the blood of Christ and why John refers to it in 1 John 5, 6. So look in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. We're starting all fresh, brand new with Scripture so you can remove all the places that you're holding. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. I really hope we can get through these. I think that we will. Romans three twenty-five, Whom God hath sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, 
Chapter 5 and verse 9. Romans 5, 9. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad. Oh, I'm sorry, that's verse 5. Verse 9 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Look in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 7. Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Look in chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off of uh, far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Look in the book of Colossians in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Look at the extent that we see Christ's blood applied. That's the only way we've got eternal life, folks. It's not the blood of a man. It's the blood of God. Look in uh, verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Look in Hebrews chapter 9. And we actually did a very, very thorough study on Hebrews 9 when we taught through this book verse by verse. So you can go on our church website and look at that sermon series and look how we broke down chapter 9. But specifically here, I want you to see Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of uh, goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It was already done because of his shed blood. Specifically, what was it? Eternal redemption. The redemption is defined. It's not temporary. It's eternal. It's forever by his blood. Look in chapter 10 and verse 19 of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 18 through 21. For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with the corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain uh, conversation received by tradition of your fathers. By the way, corruptible things, that would include the body of a man, a sinful man. And that's not Jesus. But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Here's a great proof text. He always has been foreordained in this role, that his blood would be shed, that he would be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He did not earn that at his baptism. That did not leave him on the cross. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, made known in these last times for you. And then look in Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
If the Christ Spirit left him on the cross, then he would have shed nothing but the blood of a man. And I conclude my case here in chapter 5 and verse 9 of Revelation. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. By the way, there is no elect specific nation for salvation. It's going to be a mix of anybody who believes from any background. But it is only because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We move away from that when we say, well, he attained godhood. Well, it was only when he was, had the Spirit on him throughout his ministry and then he could do all these miracles. And then at the cross, because, you know, God can't, you know, we, we, we can't have God going through that, so we'll remove the Spirit from him. Heresy, heresy, heresy. It takes away the very thing that has redeemed us. So now let's conclude in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6. That is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness. Because the Spirit is truth. John concludes his argument that he starts to defend in verse 1. He concludes it where he says, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness. Because now we're going to get into the witness of God in the record that he established. You can close your Bibles as we're getting ready to close here. What I love about what we're going to see next, what I love about what we're going to see next, <laughs> hope's like, keep going. <laughs> What we're going to see next here in this record that's born, I hear this all the time of people that do not believe like we believe. They, and, and I don't mean they believe in salvation by their works. I'm talking about atheists, agnostics, you know, mockers of the world, all that kind of stuff. They say, well, you know, God just expects you to believe. He just expects you to just, just you know, take him at his word and, 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 you know, I don't want to believe in a God like that. He's got to prove himself. May I make the case where we're going to look at he does prove himself. There's a scripture in John chapter 8 in Jesus that he writes something in the sand and they had brought the woman in adultery. There's a law that's established there that Jesus is actually using there that was established back by Moses. It's the law of two witnesses, two or more witnesses. And we're going to see because of 1 John verses, uh, chapter 5 verses 7 through 13 that God has shown himself to be accurate. He is not simply just saying, because I said so. He is proving himself by the standard that was already set in the law. And you're going to see that. But we have, John had to talk the way that he spoke because there was a common terminology in that day that Jesus became the Christ and then it left him. And he's got to show you why that would be a problem if that was true. So I, I pray that this study has been helpful to you tonight. We have to know why we believe what we believe. Otherwise, it's going to be very easy for us to just fall away from the faith. I'm not talking about you lose your salvation, but you become ineffective. You become a tool of the enemy when you don't know why you believe what you believe. And the scripture is so clear. It makes itself abundantly clear. And you've heard me say this before. I'm not the smartest person in the world, guys. I don't, I don't try to be the smartest person in the world. But I can understand clearly what God has made 
readily known here. He's, he doesn't make it super complicated. He makes it easy. A child can understand this. There are kids in the Awana program. They're little right now. But the likelihood is they'll trust Christ through the Awana program. You think they have to learn every single thing about the Bible in order to understand that? But what happens is when you get men in a room and they start thinking and spouting all their ideas, all of a sudden, you make it so complicated that nobody can get saved unless they have a degree. Look up here. If this hand were to represent you and me, my wallet's going to represent sin. I'll let this hand represent Jesus Christ, and I mean that respectively. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the plan of salvation. This sin, we are, it separates us from God. There's no amount of good works that we can ever do to get to heaven. The wages for this sin is death. That's why when Jesus came down on the cross, he took that sin, paid for it, gave up the ghost, in that he made the payment for our sin that we could never make. And simple faith in him, in that shed blood on the cross, results in eternal life for the one who, the, the, the one who uh, puts their faith in Christ. We saw it in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. He has obtained eternal redemption by his shed blood. The truth of the matter is, is that God died for us in our place so that we would not have to. Show me a more loving God than that. You can't find one. And even if they call themselves a God, it's a false God. We have the greatest news in all the world in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we should be sharing it. We should be confident as we share it as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. For those of you who are watching on the internet, heads bowed, our eyes are closed. Those watching on the internet, I encourage you to let us know if, if you put your faith in Christ tonight, if it made sense, we'd love to pray for you. Leave a comment, send us an email, info at calvaryoftampa.org. I think that'd be uh, wonderful news to hear. And if you're here tonight in the, in the live audience and, and you have put your faith in Christ for the first time, it makes sense, I'd love to pray for you. Would you slip your hand up and let me know? No one's going to come and pull you down the aisle. We're not going to ask for a public testimony or anything like that. We just want to know if somebody understood the gospel clearly and got saved tonight. Anyone else before we close? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. I, I'm, I'm forever in a position of thankfulness and, and gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which was applied to our sin payment, and it was accepted. I pray, Lord, as we continue to dive uh, deeper into the book of 1 John, especially as it comes to a conclusion, that it would result in, in our minds being strengthened in the knowledge of the truth. But above all, Lord, I hope it makes our, our worship stronger. When we sing songs about you and we realize what we're singing about, when we share the gospel with people and we realize the, good, the depth of the good news that we are sharing, I pray that resonates in our character. In Jesus' name we pray these things. If you enjoyed today's episode of Bible Line, make sure to subscribe to the channel and share this video with a friend. Do you have a Bible question? Send us an email, questions at BibleLineMinistries.org, and we'll do our best to get you an answer. Or you can leave your question in the comments of this video. Be sure to check the links in the description for more clear Bible teaching. Bible Line is a ministry of Calvary Community Church located in Tampa, Florida.